Testing one, two, test one, two. All right, let's start having a seat. We're going to begin here in just a few short moments. Got my pastoral cattle prod right here. Here you go, buddy. <laughs> Again, folks, if we can have our seat, we'll start our class. Yes, that's you, Korea Debbie. I'll be sleeping somewhere else tonight, my friends. <laughs> I don't even know if I'm getting that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Let's pray. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O heavenly King, O comfort of the spirit of truth, who art in all places and fillest all things, treasury of good things and giver of life, come and dwell in us and cleanse us from every stain and save our souls, O gracious Lord. Amen. Glory to thee who cures affliction and emptiness with the healing flow of time. O Lord, show us the light of thy countenance and we shall be made whole. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we're going to bring to conclusion today our series uh, that we've entitled and had a focus on awaking from our spiritual slumber with a focus on coming out of our spiritual despondency. In reality, our entire Christian journey is this. If we'll present ourselves to Christ our God, if we will go up to the mountain to be with Him, He will illumine us with who He is and shine light that wakes us up from our slumber and also shows us the things that He intends to heal within us. Our whole lives will be both this awakening and also this enlivened call with grace to keep the things that He reveals to us. That every time He shows us something about Himself, we want to hold to those things or shows something about ourselves in him. We want to hold to those truths. Kind of like a kid. Have you ever seen a kid? I always go back to Christmas morning sometimes, especially Christmas morning in my childhood, but it could be a number of things. When a child, You can see on a child's face when they are in wonder, where their eyes open up, and I'm not talking about deer in headlights. 
that I'm talking about when a child's eyes open up gazing into something that has them in wonder. And a child who is in wonder does not want to stop being in wonder. They want to stay there. They want to be shown more and more and more. And this is what the life of the Christian is to be. Jesus said, after all, come to me as what? A little child. Come and be in wonder of me. Come and let me show myself to you, my kingdom. Let me show you just how huge all of this is and how your salvation is so precious to me. And our eyes will open up like a child. And we'll want more and more like Father James pulls out of the C.S. Lewis, uh, uh, all of his quotes, that a child is always wanting to go higher up and further in. And so should the Christian at all times. This, this is our journey. And so today, if I were to sum up the conclusion of our time together in these last seven weeks, that conclusion would be this. If we want to, be, if we want to awaken by the illumination of Christ and come out of our despondency, we have to decide to accept His invitation to go up with Him to the mountain. Jesus invited, if you remember at the transfiguration, His disciples to follow Him up the mountain, be with Him there, and to pray. But they had to do two things. They had to say, okay, I'm going to come. That's not enough. They had to go. And when they went, they had a little journey to take up a pretty good hill where the transfiguration is. They had to exert a little bit of effort to go and be with him on the mountain. And that effort that they would make in going to be with Christ on the mountain would be extraordinarily greatly rewarded as we see at the transfiguration. How many of you have ever watched or heard the teachings of, of Father Spiridon Bailey? Father Spiridon Bailey, a number of you. He's an Orthodox priest in England. And we're going to let him, I'm going to show a couple of short videos. One's about seven or eight minutes long. One's about three minutes long to help us with our conclusion. Then we'll do some teaching and, and discussion around it. So let's have a look at the first teaching on spiritual despondency by Father Spirit on Bailey. In the Church Fathers, we have repeated warnings about despondency. And we have to be careful because... Many people have a modern interpretation of what despondency means. So often we hear people talking about despondency as though it's the same thing as, as depression, as the psychological condition of feeling very down and low and lacking in joy and seeing everything as dark. This is depression. This is a psychological condition. And it is very different from what the church fathers talk about when they say despondency. Despondency really means sloth. It means laziness, spiritual laziness. Um, acedia. Acedia, a meaning not, kidos meaning um, effort, work. So a lack, no effort, no work. This is what the church fathers refer to when they warn us about despondency. There's lack of effort in the spiritual life, a lack of striving. It is a failure to strive for God, to strive to repent, to strive to pray. And it is different from what the world takes as depression because even a very happy person, outwardly someone who feels their life is going very well, someone who feels even joyful, 
over the things that the world is giving them may actually be suffering from despondency, but be completely unaware of it. So we have to be careful, we have to be watchful for this kind of despondency within ourselves. Because it is dangerous. It is dangerous because it can prevent us from working for our salvation. Repentance is necessary for salvation. We must have faith. We must have trust in God. And unless we strive, these things will be missing from us. We put our salvation at risk if we do not watch for despondency within ourselves. It's important that we pray every evening before we go to sleep. The church fathers tell us that the demons of despondency are like a mob that turn up and attack us immediately we're awake. They attack us to rob us of our desire to pray, our desire to seek spiritual things. They seek to sow this despondency in our soul. So we must pray every evening. Pray that we may be protected by the angels and by God himself from these attacks. St. John Climacus says to us that there were times in his own life where when he went to pray, it was such a struggle, a terrible struggle. Great effort was necessary. And yet immediately prayer was finished. He felt happy. He felt comfortable and full of energy, able to go off and do this and that. And so it is with many of us. We think of the many things that we spend our time doing in the day, the time we waste every day of our lives. And yet, when we try to discipline ourselves, I just put 20 minutes aside in the morning to pray, 20 minutes in the evening, what a struggle it becomes. 20 minutes seems like centuries to us at times, and we struggle and we feel so tired. Because the demons attack us primarily in two ways with despondency. First of all, they attack us by suggesting we are tired, we are weak, the body isn't up to it, we've had a hard day. It's all too much for us. And so we have this sense of sluggishness, this sense of sloth. And the second way that the demons can attack us with despondency is by distraction, by consuming our energies and our time with external worldly things. We can become so preoccupied with worldly things that we fail, fail to strive for the inner things, spiritual matters. This is despondency. It is this, this slothfulness, this, this failure to strive. And every one of us must be watchful over our hearts. Of course, there are worldly pleasures that can make the spiritual life feel and appear alien to us. When we are so consumed with worldly pleasures, the effort required to pray, the effort required to go to church, the effort required to read the fathers and the lives of the saints suddenly becomes very burdensome. We feel a great weight, a great burden when we try to apply ourselves to spiritual matters. This is a sign of despondency. This is the work of the demons tempting us, plaguing us with this sloth, with this despondency. So every one of us must put effort into our prayer. 
We are told by the fathers that even a monk who has lived 50 years in a monastery and, and followed his rule and been to every service for 50 years, even at the end of his life, will have to make great effort to pray. The effort is always required, even to our last breath. It doesn't become just such an easy habit that we fall into it without thinking. We must struggle, we must put in effort to pray for the rest of our lives. For the rest of our lives. And how then does this despondency find its way into us? Well, when we complain, when we feel our lot is worse than everyone else's, when we complain about our worldly conditions and even about God at times, when we, when we are disobedient to something we've been instructed to do by our spiritual father, when we are disobedient to the teachings of the church, to the scriptures, to the rules and law of God, when we live in disobedience, despondency may grow in us. And when we fail to believe that we are constantly living in God's care, that we live and our very being exists within God's care, constantly, always, and that everything that we experience and everything that happens to us is permitted by God for our benefit, for our salvation. Otherwise, we begin to see the world as unjust to us, and we begin to complain, and we, we feel that the world isn't treating us as we feel we should be treated. We must banish such thoughts from ourselves. Ultimately, we vanquish completely and utterly despondency by having faith and hope in Christ. And the, the small efforts, for that's all they are, the small efforts that we make will be rewarded by the great grace of God. Father was speaking about speaking about spiritual effort. You know, that's how I mentioned when Jesus invited the disciples to go up the mountain, it required some effort. A, to say yes, two, to journey with him, and to hike up the mountain to be with him. I have to tell you something. I'm always, if you don't know this about me, um, know it now, words are so very important. And I'm very careful when I hear words and express words to bring them into the context of what's been illumined from our Father in heaven and our faith. Because to say the word spiritual effort is required brings about a lot of connotations from people's spiritual backgrounds outside of our Orthodox faith that are not necessarily good and holy. So I want to I get rid of those. Lest you think he's saying, for example... There are theologies out there outside of the church that doing something like this, this spiritual effort, is not to be seen in terms of doing something to earn your salvation. It is entirely impossible to earn what is freely given by Christ. 
You cannot earn it. He did everything. He is the author, that is the beginning, and He is the finisher, the ender of our faith. So spiritual effort cannot be approached from the standpoint of I have to do this or God is going to push the mighty smite button on me. So I want to dismiss that from your minds when we talk about spiritual effort. I have to because we're going to continue to talk about the right view and understanding of spiritual effort. Nor is spiritual effort to be seen in the very many quote-unquote works theologies that you see out there that are very much tied to earning your salvation by doing works. And you're getting checked off one by one towards your salvation. Neither of these are true. Let, let me give you a perfect example of salvation from the vine and the branches. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. How? You are a dead and lifeless branch, every one of you and me. And we were engrafted into the vine and the sap, the Holy Spirit of the vine Jesus Christ, flows into the dead and lifeless branch and it bears the fruit of the vine, not what the branch came from. Do you see this? Works are a natural, in those terms, works are a natural result of our salvation. They're a natural result of our being transformed in our very being as our, heal, as our souls are being healed by Christ. And the natural result of our being healed is the good works of Jesus Christ are done through us. Works don't earn, they proclaim His salvation. They testify to his healing. Are you with me? We want to dismiss all of that, okay? What I want to couch it as is this. Let's be honest. Spiritual effort must be seen correctly in terms of relationship. Relationship between two parties, a relationship of love. Let's be honest. How many relationships exist healthily or even at all in reality when two people are not choosing with effort to share, each, share themselves with one another. Relationship is impossible. We're speaking the relational effort of our efforts to move towards God in love and thankfulness for what He has done for us, but the effort when Jesus says, come be on the mountain with me, Lord, I love you, I'm coming. I make the effort. You see? And when he talks about spiritual effort, that's what he's talking about. And I love what, how he stated that the last thing that our enemy wants is for that effort to happen. Because if the effort happens, it bears spiritual fruit, healing to the soul, and the awareness of God in the present moments of our lives. He said, think of all, I identified with so many of the things he talked about. Oh, Lord, I'm too tired. It has been a day. And therefore, we get caught up in our weariness to think we can't make that even small spiritual effort of 10, 15, 20 minutes to sit in the presence of God and find some healing after a day like that and some rejuvenation, grace, and the energies of God coming to us to help us. And then all the distractions we've talked about in this class already that the world throws at us, right? All of the distractions that distract us into doing and being in any other way but being with God, all of those things are true because when relational effort, understand this, God is always a relational effort moving towards us. Never will He not. 
and it's when we, with relational spiritual effort, move towards Him that the transfiguration experience can take place in the lives of, the, of His people in the holy moments of their lives. Does that make sense? So that's the way we need to see from our faith spiritual effort being made, relational effort. Let's watch one more video from him. One of the demonic tricks is to attempt to sow despondency in our hearts, to rob us of our hope in God's love and his mercy. Sometimes we can be so proud that we are shocked when we recognize that we've fallen, that we've sinned. We struggle in our desire to be with God, our desire to repent and be more like Christ. And yet all of us, we are not perfect. All of us as we struggle will fall. And the church fathers remind us each time we fall, we must get back on our feet. This is the correct response to falling, not to dwell, not to become so weighed down with despondency that we lose track of where we're heading, to get on our feet and repent and repent again. The demons want us to be so filled with pride that it comes as a great shock that we've sinned, that we've fallen. We're sinful creatures, we will fall. We are not yet perfected. When we look at Jesus entering Jerusalem that final time on Palm Sunday, Jesus knew full well that those crowds that cried Hosanna, those crowds that cheered his entry, in just a few days would be calling for his death. And yet at that moment, Jesus allows the crowds to proclaim him. We can't imagine what's going on at that moment in Jesus' heart. But he, he permits the crowds to cheer him, to cry Hosanna knowing full well that they will sin and turn against him and reject him. St. Peter, Jesus warns, will deny him three times. Fear, the passions will overcome St. Peter. He denied Christ and then repented, proclaimed him. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, after Pentecost, went on even to give his life as a martyr. All of us will fall. We must not be so shocked, so broken by the thought of our sinfulness that despondency can grow there. It's a trick of the devil. We must always look to the mercy of God and when we have fallen, climb back to our feet, begin again, repent again turn once again to the mercy of God. have in Christ. I, I love, he kept hammering on this when we fall. Not if, 
when we fall, get up. Stop wallowing and looking at your fall. Do not let Satan have you fixated in your broken humanity, unyet healed by Christ, that will be healed in Christ if you remain in Him. Do not let the fall capsulate you, define you, get up again and again and again. And when we fall, how many times do we get up again and again? Well, if Jesus forgives and gives mercy 70 times 7, then I assume we get up that many times. And that number is infinite. Do we constantly rise up when we fall, run to the giver of mercy in repentance? That's what the beauty of repentance is. The Holy Spirit is in our hearts and fills our mind with God's mourning over our fall. God's mourning, not our broken human mourning, over the fall that we just had happen so that we run to our Heavenly Father, thrust ourselves into His arms. You know, we spoke last week about the deception of regret that stays with Christians when we don't constantly run into the arms of our Savior. The demonic influence that says so loudly, look at what you have done, and let me tell you, you need to think of yourself with this identity because of what you've done. How dare you think you can go before God now? And I say it's demonic because we have the tendency to give, uh, give in to the great part of the original deception of Satan in the Garden of Paradise and the Garden of Eden. And I was thinking about this a lot this week, this one part, where after Adam and Eve sinned, they notice an incredible change in their being. And this shocked them when they fell. There was a great change in their human reality and their existence as humans. They saw themselves and said, we are lesser than we were before. We're what? Naked. The church fathers tell us that it was the glory of God that they were arrayed with, that when they departed in their disobedience, that fellowship with God, that glory was removed, and they knew it instantly, and they felt it and saw it in their lives. And instead of crying out to God, Lord, have mercy and help us, they took matters into their own hands. Remember that? They didn't run to God. They looked at their fallenness and they got deceived in a secondary way. You figure out a way to return to what you were before. You cover yourselves. You take the leaves and cover yourselves. They tried their own solution to an issue only God could solve. And my friends, I tell you, that is the heartbeat of despondency. The heartbeat of despondency is not running to God in our fallenness, but trying to find other means to soothe and to salve and to see if we can heal ourselves from our lesser experience, just like Adam and Eve. Lord, have mercy. This is you and me so often in our lives. Absenting ourselves from God in the present moment because of our failures and our fallenness and the wounds of our past. When the proper response of the Christian, according to Christ Jesus, carried on by the apostles and the patristic fathers all through the centuries, excuse me, the response of the true Christian is this, just what he expressed, when we fall, when we fail, Because we're not healed, get up, run to Christ, just as St. Paul speaks about. 
when the writer of Hebrews, and assumed to be St. Paul, there is some debate about that, but when the writer of Hebrews says, let us come, therefore, boldly, you realize the writer of this knows the sin in his life. Let us come, therefore, boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, go to your high priest, Jesus Christ. Let him reclothe you with his glory again and again. Do you see the parallels between the prodigal son and the reclothing of the glory of God upon the Christian when we lose it, when we fall? We need to see that. The same story. The same story. It's the hope in the journey of every one of us as Christians. And there's no greater joy than to know Christ in such a way that when we rush to him having fallen to experience the opposite of what we have deserved in that moment. There is no greater joy. And these are the moments that build our faith. These are the moments that move us to greater and greater maturity in Christ, to know him better, to trust him more, to give our lives over to him all the more fast, or quickly, I should say. For Christ meets every Christian right there in that present moment, right there where we are, as broken as we are, and he is delighted to reclothe us. It's his nature. It is with joy that he washes his children, that he washes his children. And like a loving father, I really ought, there, there are many times when I experience the mercy of God, it's like a child that's felt fallen and skinned their knees. And I used to go to my mom or dad or my grandma or granddad because we all lived together, and they'd clean me up, bandage me up, pat me on the back, say, go play. Go play again. That is the mercy of God to his children, and we need to see it that way. Let me read to you a little bit from Time and Despondency from Dr. Rokas. He says, we must acknowledge despondency for what it is, not just a bad habit or a life hack, but a deeply embedded pattern of the soul that will not be satisfied until we're dead inside. It is imperative that we learn the art of coming to God from within our despondency, opening ourselves up to Him in all of our brokenness rather than waiting until our mess has been cleaned up. Again, I say Christ is in the midst of your despondency. Christ is in our midst, in the midst of our lowest points. She writes, to be with God as I see it, we must be willing to touch the center of our sorrow, which is also His sorrow, and bear up under the beauty of being alive in Him. One of the things she notes later, and I love this line from the book, she says, the means to live our lives by taking, uh, this means to live our lives by taking all of our authentic brokenness and being willing to cast it again and again into the limitless abyss of God's love. Do you see how Satan has you respond in your fallenness and your brokenness the opposite of that? We cast ourselves into the abyss of that which is so poisonous to the soul, and we remain there. But the reality of the Christian, the one from the heart of God, who is inviting us to Jesus Christ, casting ourselves and all of our brokenness authentically into the limitless abyss of God's love and mercy. 
Back to the idea for just a second with that in mind of relational spiritual effort. Relational spiritual effort. Despondency in your life and in my life is going to roll away by Christ's illumination when two efforts converge. We've already talked about this. When we say yes to the invitation and make relational spiritual effort, pressing through every opposition in our minds, pressing through every opposition, you're too tired. You got to do this, or you're too fallen. There's a pressing through. Therein lies the relational spiritual effort. That's its target, to press through that, to get to Christ. So that effort has to happen, and the Christ who is always moving towards us, moves towards us, and there that illumination happens. Despondency doesn't have a prayer in those moments. Allow me to give you some exhortations from the Gospels of what this spiritual effort looks like and the result of it. The first, and you guys know, at least the ones that have been with me for quite a while, the one of my favorite pictures that ministers greatly to me in my own brokenness is the healing of the woman with the issue of blood. But I want you to see this in terms of spiritual effort and Christ's healing. In St. Luke chapter 8, we remember we have the woman who has the issue of blood which means her cycle would never stop, listen to this, for 12 years. Bleeding and bleeding. She is weak. She has deficiency. She's anemic, right? This is her state of being with this problem that she has. And she sees Jesus, who she has a mustard seed of faith. She has just a mustard seed of faith that if I can get to Christ, and just touch the hem of his garment, I can find healing. Now I want you to picture this. Between the woman and Jesus is a thick crowd multitude of people that are pressed around him wanting healing themselves and listening to his teachings. You see this? So for this weak, broken woman to get to Christ who she trusts can heal her, There's going to have to be some effort. How desperate is she to find healing? You follow me? Desperate enough to press through a multitude. And not only that, guess what she's having to cast off from her mind? A woman of bleeding, and especially one that's continuously bleeding, was seen as unclean and would have been seen as unclean by all the people who were gathered together there. So not only is she pressing through her physical weakness, She decides, I don't care whether they see me unclean. I don't care whether they judge me unclean. You see what she's having to battle through in that society, in that culture? And we know what happens. She presses through the crowd. And when she touches just the hem of the garment of our Lord Jesus Christ, it says power went out of him, power went into her, and completely healed her of her issue of bleeding. My friends, that's every moment of our lives, right there, in the picture. That's our moment in our lives, in our struggle, both through and out of despondency. Do you see this? It's a wonderful picture for us to keep. Let's look at some other ways Christ taught us and was instilling in His people to have a relational spiritual effort through him, uh, towards Him with a couple of parables. 
First, the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. In the Gospel of St. Matthew in chapter 14, Jesus' own words, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over what he found, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. You hear that? He sees the treasure. He acknowledges the treasure. He doesn't just go about his life. With the treasure right in front of him, it says he sells everything that he has to purchase the field to gain the prize, relational spiritual effort. Jesus said right after that, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid, and for joy over it goes and sells, excuse me, I'm reading the same thing to you again, but with emphasis. Excuse me for a second. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had to, and bought it. You see what our Lord is saying? I'm here. I am the pearl of great price. In me is everything you were created to be satisfied in and with. Come. Come up the hill. Make the effort. Be with me. This is what our Lord is trying to get across to us. Let's talk about where relational effort truly begins and ends, and you're going to love and hate this answer because it's something we talk about all the time. You're not going to hate it. It just happens to be truth, and we just need to get to it. Where relational effort, spiritual effort begins and ends with our Lord Jesus Christ is in prayer because that is the fellowship man has with God back in the Garden of Paradise that we've been brought back to by the Holy Spirit within us. And as Father Spiridon says, and as we've spoken about regarding the monastics even, being distracted so that they remove themselves from their cells. Remember those places of being where they experience God? They get those so distracted they can't stand being in the cell anymore. They have to go somewhere else. Our enemy does not want us to be in fellowship with God in prayer. He wants us, if he wants us to pray at all, like we talked about last week, he wants us to pray in such a way that we're simply going through a book. Okay, we're done. No fellowship. But we did the spiritual thing, you see. This is what our enemy wants. He, let me tell you this. He does not want us as individuals praying, and I know this in my own home. He does not want those in holy matrimony praying together. That is one of the last things he wants. And he does not want fathers and mothers raising their children in a life of prayer within the home, a church in the home. He doesn't want it. He doesn't want the people in a home encountering Christ in the moments of their life and in their family and their marriage and as individuals. And when we say the answer is prayer, we simply need to begin with the framework of prayer in the rhythm of the kingdom of God, Christ's holy church that he's given us. We've got corporate prayer, all of the services of the year, matins, vespers, all of the services, all of the masses are prayer, fellowship with God, where our Lord is present to be with us, renew us, reveal himself to us in every one of them. And in all of the masses, 
through remembrance, the reality of Christ our salvation and every good work that He did for us 2,000 plus years ago is manifest for us to experience every time we gather in those masses again and again every year. And the rhythm cannot be seen in legalistic obligation, in works aspect, in trying to earn something. Or even, dare I say, and I think you'll know what I mean, with the simplistic view of obedience. I mean, yes, we're to be obedient. Don't get me wrong. But if all I'm doing is following an order and not being in fellowship with a God, I'm still lacking in what can be offered to me. And we have to be careful with that. Because when we gather together with our Lord in Mass, He says literally to us, I will come and table with you. I will come and fellowship with you. And I will share myself with you, illuminating you with the glory of who I am. And in the hours of prayer in our life, if you have been about the hours of prayer, unless, and believe me, I've even been blind to this at different times, but unless we're blind, we see that not only the prayers in the liturgical prayers, that they're the will of God for us and for the world and all around us, but that those very prayers in the hours of prayers actively combat despondency toward the granting of illumination, healing, and life in those moments. Prayers that throw away every distraction and that deceive us to focus either on our past or on our future, like we talked about last night, and bring us to the God of the present moment. Let me just read you St. Aidan's prayer book. Most of y'all have this, right? Whether you use it or not. Let me just read to you a couple of the prayers for morning prayer. So that I want you to look at it through the eyes of God calling us out of our thoughts on the past and our regrets or whatever and on the future and bringing us to the present. The first prayer of the morning. I thank thee, Heavenly Father, for the rest of the past night and the gift of a new day. Grant that I may so live today in thy presence and service so that at evening that day, I may truly praise thy holy name through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Another prayer in morning prayer. I commit myself to God for today. Are we thinking anything about the past? Are our eyes on anything in the future? When we're praying, God is saying, look at me now in this present moment. I commit myself to God for today. By the help of his grace, I will endeavor to keep his commandments and follow faithfully in the way of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the prayer to, the holy, to our holy guardian angel even brings us into the now. A holy guardian angel to whose care God and His mercy has committed me. Stand by me now and at my last hour. Protect me against all the powers of darkness. Defend me from all mine enemies. There's the prayers against despondency. We even pray that the angels who are given charge over us by God will war for us and keep us from despondency that one day and conduct my soul to the mansions of bliss. And by the way, that's in that one day and eternally. Again, the eternal holy now. When you look at noonday prayers, you look at evening prayers, you look at compline. They all have to do with those portions of that one day and experiencing God if we'll open our hearts and our eyes to see it. Okay? I want you to hear together some verbiage. I'm going to read a number of quotes again in Dr. Roca's book, Time and Despondency, regarding prayer itself. In the haze of despondency. Prayer becomes both the most difficult 
and the most vital endeavor. It hardly comes easily to the soul that is slackened. Prayer connects my mind with my heart, my will with my passions, my brain with my belly. Prayer is the way to let the life-giving Spirit penetrate all the corners of my being. Prayer is the divine instrument of my wholeness, unity, and inner peace. Without prayer, we begin to disintegrate, fall out of integration with our true selves, our neighbor, and our God. And one more. To do everything in the name of the Lord means to turn all to His glory. It means also to surround every deed we try to accomplish with prayer to Him, to begin it with prayer, and to end it with prayer. As we begin to ask His blessing, as we proceed to beg His help and His grace, and as we finish to give thanks to Him for accomplishing His work in and through us throughout each day. And while I was thinking about all of those prayers and the focus on the relational effort of prayer, my mind went back to a scripture that's been with me since my teenage years that keeps coming back and back again and again. And it's the words of a passage of scripture where King Solomon is at the dedication of the temple that Solomon had, had built for God. Listen to this scripture. God speaks to Solomon saying these words. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, there's a relational effort, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. If my people will pray, if they will seek me, and if they'll turn from all other things to me. You see the effort? Then we can have the illumination of Christ on, the, on Mount Transfiguration. Our darkness can roll away and we can wake up again and despondency cannot exist in that place. My prayer is that we all return to the only thing that matters through prayer, and that is the present moment with Christ our God. That's the only place where salvation happens. I pray this series has been a help to you. I pray you'll carry with you the things of the fathers and the church that our Lord has shared with all of us. I know I will. Thank God. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you all.